I had a couple friends over the last few months ask me what was I preaching on when I finished Corinthians. And I told them I was wrestling with, praying, praying about, thinking about preaching through Job, and was honest with both these friends. I said, but I don't really want to. Um, and they both sent me books on Job in response. Thanks. Um, and just in praying about it, thinking about it, working through it in my own heart, um, really believe from the Lord this is where we should go next. And so this morning, we're going to do something that's uh, what we normally do when we start a new book, and it's introductory. We really want to understand kind of the layout, the structure of the book of Job. Uh, we want to know where we're headed so that we're, we're constantly headed in that direction, in the right direction. I think um, if you've been around church or Christianity uh, for any real length of time, then you've at least heard of Job. You have some awareness of him. Job is an interesting character. Uh, he begins there, and, and everything's great. Everything goes real bad real quick. Loses all his belongings, all of his children. And his wife tells him in Job chapter 2, curse God and die. Job says no. Then chapter 3 is a very long chapter of Job poetically cursing the day he was born. I wish I was never born. I wish I'd never existed. I wish I'd never lived. I'd rather be dead than alive. And then you, you go through all these conversations. I'm going to lay some of this out as we go. But you got all the way to Job 42, which, which Darren read this morning. If you are one that would, um, and I strongly encourage this actually, that you'd memorize a text that's the, kind of the key theme of the book. It'd be those six verses, really even the first five of Job chapter 42. I would strongly encourage you to commit them to memory. There's a few books of the Bible that, that I've done that with in my own life that are immensely helpful, whether it's Judges, uh, Judges 20, 25, every man does that which is right in his own eyes, or uh, in the Gospel of John, these things I've written that you may know that I am the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is Job, 42. And so you have a guy who says, I'm not going to curse God. Then you have a guy who says, I cursed the day I was born. Then you get to the end, he says, I repent in sackcloth and ashes. And there's a whole lot in between. 42 chapters is a long book. And so how are we to take it? I, I think back to uh, Bible college. I uh, had a homiletics class that's, that's teaching you. Um, the, the phrase you have to memorize for homiletics is it's the, uh, it's, it's the art and science, not of interpreting the word, that's hermeneutics, but it's the art and science of proclaiming the word. I'll never forget, we had a guy in there, he preached a sermon from the middle of the book of Job, and he preached it from one of Job's friends, and he preached error. Because he didn't understand the structure of the book. He, he was well-intentioned, well-meaning, he just didn't get how the book is laid out in the way you should understand it. It's literature. The Bible is book. The Bible is literature. And so you need to understand how to, how to understand it. We need to rightly interpret it. And so this morning, it's, it's my design. It's the sermon by intent is introductory. Uh, I was telling Darren, uh, you know, you have to work really, really hard, and you really you trust the Spirit for this, so this doesn't sound like you're reading the first five pages of every commentary written on Job. They, you're, you're, just so you know, you start to go cross-eyed after a while reading commentaries on, and that's, that's not my heart, but it's really to help us to understand. And so I think a great place to start is to understand that Job is where wisdom and suffering meet. Let me give you the big, let me give you the big picture from this dear lady, from Johnny Erickson Tata. Uh, again, somebody that you may be very familiar with, some of you less so. She grew up in the Baltimore area. One day, she graduated from high school. She's 17 years of age. She goes out with her sister to uh, the Chesapeake Bay. They swim out to a platform. She gets on the platform. Her sister is, is playing in the water. Johnny, 
dives off the platform and immediately hits her head in the Chesapeake Bay floor. Had no idea it was as shallow it was and suffered a cervical fracture. She actually is then floating face down in the water, drowning. Her sister, who was playing in the water, popped up to tell Johnny to watch out for crabs because she'd just gotten bit by a famous Chesapeake Bay blue crab on her toe and sees her sister floating, flips her sister over and drug her out of the water. And Johnny that day was, was rendered a quadriplegic for the rest of her life. This happened in the early 70s. And so uh, Johnny may be most familiar to you for her radio broadcast, Johnny and Friends. Uh, maybe her um, organization, charitable organization, that helps provide wheelchairs and other medical devices, particularly to children who are suffering around the world. The fact that she uh, taught herself how to use her teeth quadriplegia basically she has some shoulder movement but has no other control over the rest of her body and so she uses her teeth to draw or paint one of her first ink uh, drawings was of the good shepherd I actually have a print of that hanging in my office my family got for me one year and so she's an incredibly gifted artist you can't even imagine trying to draw that close lean back to see it and go closer again it's it's an amazing talent she's written a number of books most remarkable, I think, is her remarkable, incredible trust and ongoing confidence in God. Now, when Johnny talks about her, in, her accident and this injury, I, I think she has a unique take on the cause of the accident. You see, Johnny had gotten involved in a group that several of our, our teenagers in our church are beginning to get involved in, or, or to varying degrees, and called Young Life. And Johnny had been invited to Young Life by some friends of hers in her sophomore year of high school at age 15, she got saved through Young Life, uh, sitting in someone's living room. And, and she began this journey really from an unchurched background to try to learn to how to follow Jesus. And as her high school career went on, she got a boyfriend. And so she talks about she would go to Young Life meetings on Tuesdays, and then Friday night she'd go out with her boyfriend, and they would do things in the back of her boyfriend's Mustang. And she was just living, by her own description, a sordid life. And she felt like such a profound hypocrite, trying to read her Bible, attend campaigners and learn, and, and then this is the other side of her life. And so 17, she began to pray as she's coming to the end of her high school, senior year, she graduates, and she was praying and asking God she would come home on Friday nights, her parents didn't understand her, she'd come home Friday nights just after time with her boyfriend, she's supposed to be happy, but instead she'd just be in tears, run to her bedroom, collapse in her bed and just cry. Pray that God would do anything to take away her, her hypocrisy. She remembers specifically praying, God, would you just do anything that you have to do to kill my hypocrisy and draw me closer to you? Johnny looks at her injury as God's answer to that. By her own testimony. Not wrath, mind you. Not, not God pouring out wrath on his child. But discipline. Chastening that Hebrews 12 talks about. She said later in a testimony, she would rather have spent her whole life in a wheelchair as a quadriplegic, having drawn nigh to Christ, than have walked and lived the way she was as a hypocrite. And that's hard for a lot of people to believe, I think. But I think she's being honest. And so Johnny looks at her injury and the ways that she suffered. She doesn't see it as, as wrath, but discipline. She didn't see it as unkind, but loving. Now, that didn't come quickly for her. Uh, in fact, after her injury, as she started to be mobile in her wheelchair, she would run her wheelchair into the wall. She would shake her head back and forth, trying, violently trying to remove the oxygen tubes so that she could suffocate. 
She would beat her head against block walls trying to create some kind of brain hemorrhage that would kill her. She began to try to drown her sorrows in rum and coke. Shots of scotch she would take frequently. She became suicidal in her depression and wanted nothing more than just to die. How we process through the sufferings of our lives has a profound effect on how we do life itself and its impact on others because every single person in this room has suffered, are suffering, are going to go into suffering. So how we wrestle through it and how we process through it matters a great deal. And so Job is all about this. It's learning to live a life of faith in the presence of puzzling pain, inexplicable pain, indescribable pain. Suffering whose source, frankly, can only be attributed to God and makes no sense to us. The nonsensical can really work on us, can't it? The uh, Canadian pastor whose 14-year-old daughter went out for a run and was in the wrong place at the wrong time, was horrifically attacked, assaulted, and then strangled to death. That man didn't lose his daughter because he was a pastor. He lost his daughter because we live in a sin-fallen world full of wicked people, and she was in the very wrong place at the very wrong time not because she was doing anything wrong. Or the lady who doesn't seem to ever be able to come to grips with, and I don't mean that disparagingly, but through multiple miscarriages, and it seems to just break her mentally, and she drowns her sorrow in alcohol and prescription drugs to get through it. The missionary in Africa who is serving people as a nurse, and when... The resistance came in, they kidnapped her, raped her repeatedly, beat her horrifically. Why? Not because she was a Christian missionary, but because she was a woman and she was in a town that they took over. Puzzling pain of our lives. Diagnoses, sitting in a doctor's offices where everything goes dark and it becomes tunnel vision kind of moments. My wife and I had our last meeting with her surgeon this week, a wonderful man. He was the doctor that sat with us face to face and gave us her diagnosis and he gave us all the horrible things that were to come. This is our last meeting because God has healed my wife. But there was a little bit of a PTSD moment every time he walks in the room. Puzzling pain. Undeserved pain. And so Job is actually all about how we learn to live a life of faith and the presence of puzzling pain. And I think it's an important journey for us individually as believers and critically important for anyone that's going to do ministry in someone's life and mandatory for any church because our chairs at various times will be filled with people experiencing puzzling pain. And so let's, let's work on some introduction. So we want to come to the book in a way that we really can glean the most from it. We want, to, we want to squeeze it like a sponge, getting every last drop of truth out of it, understanding what it's going to say. And so we do need to, to get where is this book coming from and what's going on. Let's get a little bit of history and context. Let's talk about timing, authorship, and location. The story of Job happens in the time that we call the age of the patriarchs. So you want to think about the time of Abraham. Uh, really, the patriarchs is uh, post-flood, right? Anti-Diluvian, post-flood, um, or, or post-Diluvian, actually. Anti is pre-flood. But post-Diluvian, so it's anti after the flood. And then these, these leaders began to rise up. And they really were leaders of families, patriarchs, patriarchal. Um, and, and this exists all the way until we have the establishment, of, really, of nations. And we think of the establishment of Israel. 
And so Abraham is a patriarch. His father's a patriarch. His father's father is a patriarch. Job happens in the time of the patriarchs. And so you want to think of Job, the events of Job, as happening then, even if Job wasn't written for some time after the events actually took place. There's a few reasons we know that this is when it was. First of all, the wealth of Job is not listed in gold and silver like it was for kings. By the time you get to David and Solomon, it starts to list their wealth and their treasure in, in terms of precious jewels, gold, silver. But in the age of the patriarchs, it would commonly be listed in numbers of servants or of cattle. Uh, Job shows no apparent understanding of the organized Jewish religion. Job wasn't a Jew, as we think of them. Job is, is, is simply a patriarch living. He's not aware. There is no codified legal system of bring your sacrifices to the tabernacle or the temple. None of that appears in Job. Uh, Job does not seem to know God by his proper name whatsoever, the name that God gives to Job or gives to Moses. Yahweh, Jehovah, however you want to try to speak that name. Job has no awareness of this. He functions as a kind of priest for his family. And then when you get to chapter 42, for his friends themselves. As a matter of fact, when you get into 40, chapter 42, when God has finished speaking, he says one more thing, and he basically tells Job's friends, now you need to repent, and Job will pray and offer sacrifices for you. And Job functions in, as a, in a priestly way. He does it for his children, offering sacrifices for them. He's the spiritual leader of his home. He's functioning in this region, at least that way. Uh, there's another part in Job where it talks about him going into a city. When he goes into a city, the old men and the young men all sit down and listen to him. And so Job garnered a great deal of respect, but he functioned in a priestly fashion. From Adam forward, we have stunningly long lifespans. We have guys living 900 plus years. And when you look at the Bible and it tells you, starts to give the genealogy, and it gives how long people lived, you see this, this regression in how long they live. And so we go from 900 years, then, the, then we're down into the 700s and the 600s, and it keeps dropping and dropping and dropping. When we get to Abraham, we have about 175 years these guys were living, as opposed to 900 plus years. Abraham's father lived something like 125, I think it was. His grandfather lived around 200. But if we're trying our best to try to date Job, after the events of Job, he lives another 140 years. That would put him roughly around this 185, 200-year age mark. And so we would date Job, the events of Job, as happening similarly to the time that Abraham is living, or his father. And so this age of the patriarchs. Job, when he lives another 140 years, is able to accumulate a tremendous more amount of wealth, have multiple children, and so it matches this lifespan. Well, that's very different from when the Job is written. And so when was it written? Well, we're not entirely sure, to be honest with you. Uh, we do know this. There's a narrator, and he's a character that shows up in the book in the first two chapters and then in chapter 42. And so somebody is recounting the story for us um, based upon what we understand from history, Job would have been oral tradition that was being passed down from one person to the next. And so somebody at some point, through the inspiration of the Spirit, because all Scripture is written by God through inspiration of a person, they sit down and they codify, they write out this story. And they tell us the story of Job. We know that it's at least 140 years after the events happened of Job, because that's how long Job lived before he died, and the narrator knows that information. And so with all that, we can actually safely say this. 
Job is the first book of the Bible where ink was put on paper. It's the first written book. Now that alone should stand out to you. What's the first thing God wanted written to communicate to his people? It's this. It's the truths of Job. It's understanding how do we come to grips with puzzling pain, inexplicable pain, undescribable pain, that we can't find a source for. I did also want to point out something interesting about Job and how it points us to other cultures. There are multiple old other cultures who have Job stories, fascinatingly enough. Uh, I spent some time reading some of those this week. Um, and so I just want to give you a list of them because I think it stands out for an important point. In Canaanite culture, for example, there's the story of Coret, a king who loses everything from his possessions to his family. That sounds familiar. In Egypt, there's a story of a man who debates whether he should take his own life in the face of inexplicable suffering. In Babylonian literature, there's a story, listen to the title of this Babylonian story, I will praise the Lord of wisdom. It's about a religious man afflicted for no reason, mocked by his friends, and his family turns on him. He begs for answers and he gets none. The Sumerians have a tale where a man suffers intensely and in crying out to God is answered with the grocery list of all the sins that he has committed. When he repents, he's restored. That's fascinating because almost every ancient culture surrounding this region has a kind of Job story. Now, some of you are aware of this as well. Almost every ancient culture also has a flood story. And so we would be prone to ask a couple of questions, and in this sense, it, it matches even Sunday school. Darren's teaching the adult class through apologetics. You don't actually want to miss that. It gives you great answers for how you engage with folks. And so how do we understand this? So is Job simply the Judeo-Christian model of this? Or is Job borrowing from these stories? What should our confidence be in the book of Job? Well, what I did for you is I highlighted the similarities but there are significant enough differences that the answers and circumstances point to Job as being very different from all the rest of these. Now, I don't say that as a biblical scholar, although I believe that, but that's even the take of secular scholars of ancient literature. Let me borrow from a prominent secular scholar. He's a clear unbeliever. He actually wrote and he writes for a, a group called Pagan um, I think it's called Pagan Word or something like that. But he's a scholar of ancient literature. He points out the fact that, that these other texts cannot be viewed as source material for Job because that would demean both the other ancient texts and their traditions as well as Job. And it would point to some kind of link between them that just frankly doesn't exist linguistically. And in fact, there are more significant differences than agreements. Interestingly, I will quote from him here. He points to the same answer we would about the similarities. Well, then how can you have all these ancient stories about really wealthy guy that loses everything and wrestles with God? He says this, the question, why do bad things happen to good people, is as old as human beings themselves. He goes on to point out that the biggest difference in the story of Job when compared to all the other stories the biggest difference is this, who the God is and the answer that is given. Well, 
In that sense, I don't think our modern culture is any different from the ancient cultures. Why do good things happen to bad people? Everybody's got an answer. The Christian answer is distinctly different because our God is distinctly different. Now to say that, I want to be very clear, because our God is real, he loves, he cares, and he communicates with his people. He's not a made-up, fantastical entity. And so Job then stands alone as the true message of suffering. Interestingly enough, these other ancient stories, they all boil down to this. The suffering was either to change you or because you did bad, something bad. And Job says, that's not the point of this at all. And that's where people actually get scared of it. You see, when we grow up, we grow up being told this is this, this is this, this is this. This is how things work. This is how the world works. And you exist on, on concrete. Everything feels very firm to you in your footing. One plus one equals two. A plus B equals C. This is the way the world works. Concrete. And as you get older, you begin to realize some of the things you told, were told were concrete are a little spongier than you thought. They just are. One of the ways I grew up was because of my family's background, whether in coal mining or automotive industry work, I was taught management is bad, workforce is good. And I was taught that because I saw uncles and grandfather and father at times suffer horrific injuries, life-altering diseases, because management told them to do a job they knew was dangerous, they knew was risky, and then didn't care about them. So I was taught, bear with me, unions are good because they protect the workforce. And I'll be honest with you, I think to the degree to which management of companies are held accountable to care for their workers more than just use them is right. That's called justice. But then I became aware that if you pay union dues, that was the only cause they cared about. Except that they had no problem supporting politicians who endorse and advocate for other social causes we have major problems with, like abortion. And suddenly the concrete I was raised on became a lot spongier than I realized. That we live in a world that's a lot more difficult to claim this is black and this is white. That's just not reality. And so you're left, suddenly when you come to those spongy areas, lots of people get scared. And the way people respond to them is radically different. Job's friends respond in a particular way, and it's devastating to the people that are suffering. Job responds in a particular way, and it's wrecking his worldview till God speaks. Part of Job is dealing with these puzzling, spongy areas, and so for that reason, I think that's actually why a lot of Christians avoid it, not to mention that it's 42 chapters, and it's all about hard things. What if it pushes me in ways that make me uncomfortable? Well, I think it will, but I have ex lived long enough to experience this. No growth comes without uncomfortability. And so how then is Job structured? How does the book attack this subject matter? How does it go after it? I'm going to give you three ways to think about it. Three ways, and I hope you'll kind of keep these, and as much as I can as we study through Job, I'll try to remind you of these, because these are three ways for you to think about interpreting or understanding Job that will be helpful to you. First of all, I would encourage you to think about Job as a framed painting. 
When a painting is finished, it needs a frame. Uh, the frame should complement what's going on. It should also direct your attention to the internal piece of art. Uh, a, a frame maker has failed. If you go into a museum, you see a painting, and you're like, look at the beautiful frame it's in. They failed. It, the goal is make you look internal toward it to draw your attention. Well, the book of Job is written and presented like a framed painting. The framework, chapters 1 through 2, are narration. And you need these to understand what's going to happen and to wrap your brain and your heart around the events and storyline of Job. But lots of times, so much time, and we're going to spend a fair amount of time, chapters 1 and 2, pre-warning, but so much time is spent there that people think that's the truth or the ending framework, that's what I need. But the, actually, Job is written in such a way that those frames are to hold it, to stretch the painting, to, to amplify its beauty, but to draw your attention to what's in the middle. Many of the greatest lessons you will learn from the book of Job are not actually contained in chapters 1 and 2 in the last half of chapter 42, but everything that happens in the middle. And I think that's actually the part of Job people skim. Okay, I know his friends are wrong. Job's okay. Let's get to the end. And so I want to encourage you that as we journey through Job to think of this. What this tells us is that the opening and the beginning give us critical information. But the most important thing to look at is in the middle. Don't think that the answers from Job are in a vacuum or easily gleaned. There is work to be done here to understand the book of Job. So I want to encourage you to think of Job as a framed painting. But don't just think of it as a frame painting. Think of it as a drama that unfolds. David Kleins, uh, one commentator, writes about Job, I think helpfully points out the structure of Job in exposition, complication, and resolution. Now, we actually do this a lot with literature or film, uh, any kind of media that way that's telling a story. In the exposition phrase, the scene is set. Remember, the narrator is writing Job for us. Job didn't know any of that when it started happening. And so we're being told this story to make us think in a particular way. So exposition is so critically important to, to get the story and understand where this person's at. Um, when I was a kid growing up and we would watch TV, right, every, every week it would just go from, it would build one after another. And most of you at least will be familiar with the old, I mean old school Batman, remember, um, where, the, you know, where they'd walk up walls, him and Robin, and really they're just you know, laid out flat, and you, you had the, the, the ridiculous-looking penguin, and every stinking week ended on a cliffhanger, right? Exposition, you had to have this story set for you. Now we live in Netflix, right, where you can, like, binge-watch the whole season, eight episodes in, in a weekend, if you're prone to do that. And then the next, and you've got to wait 12 months before the next thing comes out. You don't even remember what happened. You need somebody to reintroduce you to all these characters, uh, there's entire websites and news media now where you can catch up what happened in season one that I need to remember for season two because it's so long ago and you've binge watched 10 other shows. And so as this drama unfolds, chapters one and two, this expositional phrase, they're introducing us. And what's interesting is each cycle, and I'll give you this other way in a minute, each cycle of conversations introduces you to the characters again. Exposition complication is where you start to see the buildup of the real problem. So think about that then. I just told you the exposition, the setting the stage was chapters 1 and 2. The complication is the buildup of the problem. The biggest problem in Job is not the loss of his children and his crops. The biggest problem is Job in Job is how they process through puzzling pain. That's what he wants us to think about. Not 
did a bad thing happen, but how are you and I going to do life in the face of this bad thing that has happened? This horrible thing. What answers are we going to draw from? Where are we going to look? And so you have the, this complication, then you finally have the resolution. The resolution portrays how the story is solved. <laughs> when I was a kid and we were watching one of those TV shows, I don't know which one it would be, you know, um, Chips was a personal favorite. Eric Estrada. Some of you guys are like, I don't even know what you're talking about. That's because you live in the age of terrible TV. Um, and him and John Baker, they were my favorite guys, man. I still remember the theme music. I'd do it for you, but, but that would punish your hearing. Um, and, and I remember them, and I remember watching the clock as a kid, and I feel like it was an hour-long show, right? It was like 8 to 9, and at 9 o'clock, the, the TV stations would play these dumb chimes. Uh, me and my brother would always carefully try to distract my parents because the chimes reminded them it was 9 o'clock, time to send your kid to bed. And so we tried, but I remember watching the show, and, you know, invariably there's some, like, gas tanker. They must have done this show 50 times. There's a gas tanker falling over. The gas is slowly leaking across. There's sparking wires. The gas is going to it, right? Um, uh, you know, Ponch is in there trying to drag the trucker out of the truck. And I remember as a kid looking at the clock, and, and meanwhile we got the bad sergeant that's doing this, and we got this, and I'm looking at the clock, and I realize it's 8.55. You're not saving the trucker, fi- fixing the job, and taking care of the neighbor's dog in five minutes. I remember as a kid being like, oh, come on. Because I knew it'd go to be continued. That's what they do with drama. It just draws it out. Why in the world is this 42 chapters of this? This ongoing, drawn out, to be continued drama. What that tells us, and it's an important way to think about Job, is that you need to let the story develop so that it can work on you and into you you need to spend enough time in that to let it work on you and in you some of you wear this dickens used to get paid by the word that makes some dickens novels pretty wordy we need some editors going on there that's not the case here the length of job should show you you will not learn the lessons of job unless you soak in it it needs to become a good friend to us we need to let it like a drama unfold thirdly thirdly it's a series of conversations so we're going to think about it as a framed painting that points us to the middle we're going to think of it as a drama that we need to let it soak and so let the story unfold and then lastly a good way to think about the structure is that it's a drama it's a courtroom drama actually What Job actually will do is he'll issue a challenge to God. And the the challenge, we can think of it this way, is give me the evidence for the reason for this pain. And it's Job's way of inviting God into a setting where Job can present his case and God can present his case. And actually, as you go through 42 chapters, there comes a point when Job's done talking. You know, in this cycle where Job starts it, his friends say stuff, Job responds. Job starts it, his friends say stuff, Job responds. And then they get to the end, nobody's got anything else to say. Then the young, foolish guy jumps in, he talks for chapters. He's got lots to say because he's listened to all the gray heads. Now let the the full head of hair say something. And then God says, I got something to say. 
And so we have this whole series of conversations that's taking place as God is answering what's going on in his life. Some, and let me put this up because some of you will write these down in, in the cycle of conversations. Those are chapters uh, there. So cycle one is chapters three through 11. But some, because there's so many identifiable specific characters and they have a different kind of voice, there are some that believe that this was actually performed by traveling troops of actors. One of the things they would do is perform Job when it was still oral tradition. And so they would come into a town, everybody would gather together, and they would tell this story. And then this guy would speak, and then this guy would talk, and then you remember this guy over here that says something. And that's why for, uh, for the whole book, you got this one young dude sitting there silent, listening, you know, like somebody watching a tennis match to all the guys talk to Job, Job talk back, and then suddenly he speaks up. And then they'd have this outside booming voice speak forth as God. It's so much about what is said. You go through all these chapters and it's almost as though when Job is finally exhausted defending himself is when God steps in. What this tells us, what this tells us, this structure, is that wrestling with suffering is complex. And truth is usually found when nothing else can be said except to hear from God. Don't give up too soon on the conversation. If all you do is Job 1 through 2 and Job 42, you miss it. Let the conversations find you. Let you really find yourself in the conversation because that's actually the power of a performed drama is who am I in the story? When Jesus tells stories, who am I in the story? When Jesus tells the story of the, of the widow whose sons have been killed unrighteously and she's petitioning God time after time after time, Jesus intends you to find yourself in that story. When he tells the story of the prodigal son who takes from dad, spends it on himself, then is broken and comes back to God, he wants you to find yourself in the story. Are you the prodigal son? The ones he tells the story to are the Pharisees. Are you the older brother who judges? You're to find yourself in the drama that unfolds of Job. You should be asking yourself, who am I in the story? Now, you may be walking into Job this morning saying, I know that I'm Job. Okay. I believe you. And I don't dismiss that. And I think this is a good moment to pause and say this. Your suffering is yours. And I want to challenge you in one sense, don't compare your sufferings to other sufferings. When you do that, you can fall down a deep well of saying, well, it could be so much worse, almost like you don't have the right to hurt. And that is so unhealthy and so devastating. In another way, you compare your sufferings with others. You can then begin to demean and diminish the hardships of others because maybe yours are really extreme. And then, so then you can lack empathy. So you can either like, not have empathy for your own heart or lack empathy for the heart of others. Instead, I want you to understand that suffering is pain. And in Job, it's specifically puzzling pain. And so let's, let's press forward then, and let's talk about purpose for the book. And I think there's a couple ways we can attack this. First of all, we want to talk about types of suffering. Now, Eric Ortland, he's son of Ray Ortland, he just released a brand new book on Job. 
Uh, a few weeks ago, I was able to get an earlier copy. Um, I would strongly encourage it to you. I don't even remember the name of the book right now, but it's, it's written by Eric Ortland. I would commend, I've read enough of the book, I would commend it to you. And what Eric Ortland does at the beginning of his book that is super helpful is he identifies different kinds of suffering. Now, I've read different, uh, you know, as most of you know, studied a lot about counseling, so read a lot about counseling from a counseling perspective, read a lot from, about lament here over the last few years, grief, sorrow, suffering. But Eric does the best job of anyone I've seen of categorizing different kinds of pain in the Bible, different types of suffering. And it actually becomes almost a Venn diagram of pain. And a Venn diagram, you might remember, is when all these circles overlap. Let me give you some of his categories. There's at least one of them I think he's over-categorizing, but that's okay. Um, maybe Eric's right and Steve's wrong, right? So uh, I encourage you to read on your own, study on your own. Um, but he gives these types of suffering. There's at least two more than what I'll give you this morning. One of them is suffering for persecution. Now, Jesus makes this very clear, right? That, that sometimes we suffer as a result of persecution, Matthew 5, 10 through 12, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Paul, sitting in a dungeon, singing, chained, uh, at another point chained to a Roman soldier, uh, writing books of the Bible, because he's an apostle. That is a different kind of suffering than Job. Now, so suffering is there, pain is there, but its source, its cause, and its resolution, and some of the ways you're to respond to it are different. Think of it this way. If you, if you have a, a toothache, um, you know, besides sticking some clove oil on it, the doctor may tell you, tell you to take a mixture of acetaminophen and ibuprofen, Tylenol and ibuprofen. You mix those together, they're far more effective, so take that, right? So be on this, and we'll, we'll do this on your tooth, boom, here you go. You could also break your leg and be given uh, ibuprofen and, and acetaminophen to take and a mixture of it. Do this, the ibuprofen will help reduce the swelling, acetaminophen will help with the pain. Take these cyclically, take them together, and you're going to have much more effective, and both of these avoid opioids, right? And sometimes there's a place for opioids, but rightly, there is. Trust me. Um, Kidney stone says yes, right? So, uh, um, and so you got these things. So you might both be taking acetaminophen and ibuprofen, but what you do next is radically different. I'm not, I like Dr. Daly. He's a good dentist. He's a kind dentist. He's a former Army Ranger, super cool. Uh, he's in his 50s, likes to look cool, likes to drive fast cars. I like him. I break my femur. Dr. Daly and I are not having an appointment. He could tell me acetaminophen and ibuprofen are going to help you. I need somebody who's going to put my leg in a cast. It's a different kind of doctor, right? Just the way it is. When you think about suffering, while there will be things that overlap, and I'll show you specifically what some of those are in a moment, you need to start thinking as a believer that there are different types of suffering and how I respond to it and what next steps are needed to happen in my life may be very, very different. And so another type of suffering, for example, would be suffering for sin. That's actually what Johnny Tata was pointing to. Again, not wrath, not wrath. Romans 5 tells us that God has poured his wrath out on his son for the sake of the believer. Now, if you're here this morning and you have not repented of your sin and put your faith in Christ, the wrath of God stands over you. You're simply waiting to experience it at judgment. 
But if you are redeemed, if you have seen that you're a sinner, if you have turned from that sin, put your faith in Christ, you are now following Christ. You're under the lordship of Jesus Christ. You are a son and daughter. You are not an enemy of God. He puts it this way in Hebrews 12. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. The word chasing, I've told you this many times, but the word chasing there is the same word for scourging that Jesus experienced. Sometimes the discipline of God is very, very painful for the sins that we experience. Discipline uh, we think of as an alarm clock tells you to get up. Chastening are consequences for when you didn't get up. It's two different things. Uh, you may not have children, but you were a child at one time. And so you know there was a difference between mom and dad saying, don't chew with your mouth open, discipline. Uh, eat your peas, discipline. Eat your green beans, discipline. And, oh, you're not going to eat your peas? Guess what you're having for breakfast? Chastening. Because cold peas for breakfast, that's punishment in anybody's book. And so what he's telling us is you can suffer sometimes because of your sin. The Corinthians know this. Paul says that you're receiving the Lord's table wrongly. For this reason, there are many that are sick and some that are even dead. The end of the book of James tells you to call for the elders of the church to anoint you with oil, to pray for your sickness. And, the, and James says this, and if you've sinned, that you would confess your sin and be forgiven. He's recognizing that you may go through a physical malady, a physical hardship, a physical suffering, and you might call for the elders of the church to come and spend time with you, anoint you with oil. Um, and, and lots of people are all over the page on that. Do we actually anoint oil? The power's not in the oil. The anointing of oil was, was physical care, so I don't have a problem with anointing with oil. But pray for you. But then when it says that if you've sinned, that your sins, it's very clear that, the, that there could be a, sp a position, a, a, a spot where you have a member of your church or a believer and they call for you to come in. And there's clearly a conversation that's happening because the, maybe the suffering they're experiencing is because they sinned. But maybe not. But the very real truth is that Christians can sometimes suffer as a result of sin. Again, not the wrath of God poured out on us. Now, I, I, I think this is really important, though, for me to pause here in a moment. Because, and, and this might be just experience from my own life, and then experience in dealing with others. I remember the very first time I had a kidney stone, and I'm driving, trying to drive home from work, and I'm just in the world's worst kind of pain imaginable. I've described it as feeling like Mike Tyson was stabbing me in the back repeatedly. That's the closest I can come to the pain. I had to stop multiple times on the way home just to get out of my truck and throw up. You're, the pain is so intense, your body just starts convulsing. It's, get it out of me. And I remember laying in bed. Um, I had as much pills as I could get it in me. I got a heating pad on my back and just writhing in pain. And I remember thinking this. Where have I sinned that this is happening? Now, if you're anything like me, you've experienced a cold, a sickness, the flu. I don't care what it is. And it's gone through your mind, is this punishment for my son? Not wrath, but is this discipline and chastening? And I want to encourage you with something. If one of my children walked into my house when they were much younger, young enough for corporal punishment, right? They've passed that age. They walk into my house, and I march their little self 
little kindergartner age self down the hallway to my bedroom. I tell him, Daddy loves you, but you cannot do that. I bend him over my knee and I just spank him. And my child says, what did I do, Daddy? That's on you to figure out. Turn him over my knee and spank him again. Is that a good daddy or a bad daddy? That's a terrible daddy. That's a horrible daddy. Every time you look in the Bible and you see people suffer for sin, it's really clear that's what's going on. When David's stillborn son, God tells him, this is what's going to happen. Kingdom taken from you? Absalom, this is, what, this is why this is happening. Saul, Saul, this is what's going to happen, and here's why it's happening. Every time, he makes it clear. Now, you may need someone, James, to help you be honest and work through life. But God is not in the business of just unleashing suffering in your life because of sin and you not having a clue about it. But there can be suffering as a result of sin. There can also be suffering for growth specifically. In Romans 5, it's almost more of a catch-all. But it says this, Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. There is some suffering, it seems, specifically it's designed from beginning to end, is to grow us to be more like Jesus Christ. All suffering can do this, but there seems that there's some suffering that's designed specifically toward this end. So which one is Job? And I told you there's two categories Eric gives that aren't here. When you study through the book of Job, here's your answer. It's none of them. Job starts righteous and ends righteous. He doesn't become more righteous. Job didn't sin to get this. And Job isn't experiencing this for persecution. One of the other categories Eric Ortland gives is the wilderness wandering kind of suffering. It's not that. Whether you believe that category should be there, doesn't matter. It's not that. Job's is intentionally ambiguous and puzzling. And any attempt actually to shove Job into one of these other categories actually identifies who you are in the story. You're one of his friends. So I caution you, don't do that. Because their sin is so severe at the end, God says, you need Job to offer some sacrifices for you, and you need my forgiveness, because you've been terrible friends. Now, I call it a then, because some of the responses and fruit to suffering transcend its cause. And I don't want you to be so in a box, i got to figure it out. There are some things, no matter the cause, no matter the source, there should be trust in God. And that's actually part of the power of Job is because I want to know how can I trust God and go through this. There should be a purification to our faith, right? Because suffering reveals true faith, suffering strengthens faith, and suffering purifies faith. So no matter the source of the suffering, it should do those things in my faith. In Job's, it reveals. And there should be endurance as we go through it. It's puzzling pain what Job's 
what Job experiences, and it's his friends and, frankly, Job's heart's inability to figure out what is going on. There is another theme in the book of Job that's really important for you to understand in its purpose, and that's the theme of retribution. What is retribution? Retribution simply means this. Do bad and suffer, do good and be blessed. Galatians points it out this way. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. The one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. The major argument of the entire book of Job surrounds Job's friends assuming, assuming this is retribution. There must be sin somewhere for this level of suffering. And Job saying there isn't, and then Job inviting God into a courtroom to defend himself about the source of this pain. Because Job doesn't believe he deserves this suffering. This is one of those you walk on concrete and suddenly life gets spongy on you. Because by and large, God says in Galatians, what you sow, you reap. In the whole context of Scripture with the other wisdom books, it tells you this. Wisdom, Proverbs, the the wisdom of Proverbs is this. Do good, be blessed, do bad, suffer. Be a fool, suffer. Be, Be wise, have good things. That's the whole thing. That's, Proverbs is saying largely, that's how the world works. This is how the world works. Ecclesiastes comes in and says, in its wisdom literature, and says, but that doesn't answer all the questions because I see good people have lots of things or, or have little things. I see bad people have lots of things. And guess what? They both die in the end anyway. So you know what the wisdom of it is? Whether it seems like the world is concrete, do good and and be blessed, or do bad and suffer, or whether the world seems spongy, you seem to be suffering for no reason, enjoy the kind gifts of God and delight in the time that you have. That's the wisdom of Ecclesiastes. Don't let the confusion of a world that sometimes seems broken rob you of being able to enjoy the world. Then Job comes in and says, yeah, but what's it like when you really live in this mess? And what do I do with it? That's where Job fits into the wisdom literature. It's puzzling pain. Now, I'm a why kind of guy. I love philosophy. That's the why. Why are we doing this? Philosophy. That's that's what it is. The big questions. I'm a why kind of guy in everything. A car's not working. I want to know why. I I did terrible in math because I wasn't smart enough to figure it out, and I want to know why. Why does this work? Why do you have to do the order of operations? Why do you have to do this? And it was like, Steve, shut up, learn the rules, do the math. And I'm not good at that kind of stuff. And by that, I mean shutting up and obeying. And I'm not smart enough to figure it all out. I want to know why. Why this? Why that? And so suddenly, when I'm in my first year of grad school, working on a master's degree in counseling, I'm a dorm soup, and they come and knock on my door, and Steve, you've got to go in the basement. So-and-so needs your help. One of the guys that lived in my dorm, I go into the basement, I go into the laundry room, I walk over, and here's this massive mountain of a guy. He played on the football team, and he's sitting there scrunched between the washing machine and the cinder block wall, and he's beating his head against the cinder block wall, saying, I just want to die. I want to know why. I don't know where I point you to for hope. And my assumption is I just needed more training. Because the answers don't come easy. And then I finished my master's degree, and I got this little boy coming to me who's been abandoned by his mother, abused by his father. And he wants to know why. 
And it's not because he did anything wrong. It's not because he follows Jesus. It's not just to grow him. And he looks at me and he's bright enough to say, am I so broken that the only way God could change me was to make my daddy hate me? You know what he needs? Job. He doesn't need my categories. He doesn't need my concrete, do good and be blessed and do bad and suffer. He needs something more than that, doesn't he? And so I want to know why. Why? And so, where will Job take us? I think there's some lessons that Job's going to teach us. I think, first of all, we want to ask this question as we study Job. How do I minister to the suffering? And specifically, how do I minister truth to the suffering? And so we may very well talk once again as we study through Job about things like meals and hugs and comfort and um, words of encouragement and beautiful flowers and vacuuming floors and doing laundry and mulching yards and rides for kids. We may talk about all those practical things, and those are wonderful, and they must be. Those are, those are very much the hands of Jesus into the suffering person. But specifically with Job, we want to think about how do I minister truth to the suffering? Like Job's friends, an arrogant confidence theologically can lead to damage instead of healing. Good intentions are nice, but they have little place in ministry to the hurting especially especially when you hit your good intentions to theological arrogance we want to learn what not to do in the midst of puzzling pain secondarily i think we want to learn how to be content with god when he holds back key answers for my life johnny as she finishes coming out of her late teenage years and is still struggling tremendously Someone in her group recommended she get together with this guy named Steve Estes. He was 17, had just come through Young Life himself, and he began to come to her house on a weekly basis and study the Bible with her. He said these 11 words to her that she has held on to all along, God permits what he hates to accomplish that which he loves. Steve Estes is the, is the opposite of Job's friends. He admitted times and places where he doesn't have good answers and there are no good answers. He pointed her back to the identity of God, helped her learn where to study the sovereignty of God and the power of God. And he helped her learn how to be content with God when he holds back key answers for my life. We want to we journey with Job as he moves from Job 1.10. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? And all this Job did not send with his lips. But we want to journey with Job to Job 3.1. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. Only to ultimately arrive at Job 42.2. I know that you can do all things and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Thirdly, we want to learn how do I live in a world where retribution seems broken. A significant portion of the lament of the Psalms centers when retribution seems broken. The wicked seem to flourish and the righteous seem to suffer. How do I live in a world where retribution seems broken? This is the ultimate point of the book of Job, the quest of Job and his friends, and it must be ours as well. We started this sermon with Johnny Tata, and I want to finish with her as well. You see, while we might assign her quadriplegia, and, and I would lean into what Johnny says about it, 
as part of the discipline of God, the kind discipline of a father? What do we do with her two bouts of breast cancer, her COVID battles, her chronic pain, and the endless torrent over the years of bad friends with worse theology who have told her if you just had enough faith, God would have healed you? What about all those pains? Those are puzzling pains. Through the various kinds of suffering, her heart has gone back to those 11 words, God permits what he hates to accomplish that which he loves. No matter the source of suffering, no matter the conclusion of it in your life or mine, we must learn from modern saints like Johnny and ancient saints like Job. How do we carry the cross well? We must learn to look to the first book of the Bible ever written. We must look to the authoritative word on suffering. We must look to God if we have any hope of learning to live a life of faith in the presence of puzzling pain. To that end and toward that goal, we begin our journey into Job. May God grant us understanding, comfort, and wisdom as we meet suffering. We want to learn to live a life of faith in the presence of puzzling pain. Father, thank you for Job. Thank you for the lessons we are going to learn. Father, we ask humbly that you would teach us. We ask earnestly that your spirit would do a work in us and through us, that we might learn to be good friends, that we might learn to be good sufferers. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.